Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. I am your host, Joe Blair, and thanks for listening today. Today's episode features Ken Harbaugh, who is currently running for Congress in Ohio's 7th District. Ken is a former Navy pilot, Yale Law School graduate, and president of Team Rubicon, a nonprofit that deploys American veterans to provide disaster relief services all over the globe. Ken has dedicated himself to a life of service in a wide range of capacities and is now seeking to apply his skills and talents to the United States Congress. In this podcast, Ken walks me through his early years as a kid in a military family, discusses his own winding career path, and shares how he wants to serve Ohio like no one has ever has before. His campaign slogan is country over party, and Ken truly believes, even in these polarized times, that we all have more in common than we may realize. Normally, I avoid politics to the best of my ability. In today's political climate, it feels more like a shouting match where the loudest and most provocative sound bites win. I personally wish we could have more of an open dialogue about the issues, and I figured this podcast would be a good way to beta test that idea. Depending on your political position, you may disagree with Ken on certain issues, but you cannot deny that he has made countless sacrifices for his country. For this, he deserves our respect and our gratitude in the very least. I had the good fortune of meeting Ken recently, and he caught my attention. He has a subtle, disarming nature and a quiet power about him, a stark contrast to the politicians you see on TV or the few I've met in person. Ken seems like the type of person I would want as my neighbor and really sees more good in people than bad. I admire this about him. I also appreciate that he thinks hard about practical strategies and tactics for fixing problems in Ohio. Things like addressing the opioid epidemic, creating new jobs, and assuring access to healthcare. He strikes me as someone who has both the authentic desire and the operational skill set necessary to actually get things done. You can follow Ken's campaign on Twitter at Team Harbaugh and online at www.kenharbaughforcongress.com. So without further delay, please give it up for an epic human, Ken Harbaugh. And we're live with Ken Harbaugh. Hey, Ken, how are you today? Doing great. Thanks, Joe. Good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. I uh, want to thank uh, Julia and Ernestine for getting us in touch. Uh, and it was, it was so funny meeting you here in Silicon Valley and, uh, and then to find out that my wife's family, my, uh, my wife Teva, is actually in your district, in, in Kashapta. Right. Yep. <laughs> And, uh, and also, just want to mention, I listened to your audiobook, uh, Here Be Dragons, uh, that I know you wrote and narrated with your wife, Anne Marie. And uh, so I know more about you probably than I should, uh, but, but I'd, I'd... <laughs> well, we, it's our fault. We put it out there. <laughs> but I'd recommend it uh, to anyone, especially kind of young parents. Uh, uh, I, I laughed, I cried. It's a, it's a brilliant uh, book. And, uh, and so kudos on that. Um, so I, th I think we'll start uh, the way we start most of these uh, Epic Human podcasts with uh, a little bit about uh, you and your upbringing uh, and, and maybe what you were like as a kid. Yeah, you just want me to start from there. What, yeah. I, what I was an awesome kid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I grew up in a, in a military family, bouncing around every couple of years, was was born just outside a, a military base, as a matter of fact. And, you know, that that has uh, certain pluses and certain minuses. The plus is you, you learn how to adapt. You, you grow up with a real sense of pride as well. I remember 
thinking about what my dad did. And while I didn't always understand it, I, I knew it was incredibly uh, important. Um, I actually remember going to work with him one day on mm. one of those take your kid to the office days. But his office was a little different. It was a, a bunker deep inside Germany, 100 feet underground. Whoa. And, and on that day, uh, they were going through a simulated nuclear missile attack by, by Russia. That, that was their, their job that day was to rehearse what they needed to do. And my dad is the uh, vice wing commander of a reconnaissance squadron with reconnaissance planes. His job was to get them all up in the air, off of the runway, out of, out of their um, hangars and up into the air in eight or nine minutes. And I remember the, the organized chaos hmm. of those eight, uh, eight and a half minutes and just trying to figure out what was, going around, what was going on around me as they scrambled the pilots, refueled the jets, and, and launched them. And then I remember afterwards the the eerie calm, like they had done their mission mm. and it was just quiet in the bunker. And I turned to my dad and I said, what now? And his answer has always stuck with me. I didn't understand it at the time, but I will never forget the words. He said, now son, we wait. And I was about 10 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know what he meant, but I, I learned later that what he meant was now we wait to die. Because oh, we've geez. done our job. We've done our mission here. Right. We've got planes up in the air, and they can now reconnoiter the battle space and report back. But for, for our part, even 100 feet of dirt and concrete and steel is not going to be able to protect us from a, a hit from a Russian nuclear-tipped ICBM. Uh, so I, I, I learned from a pretty young age uh, that, that America needs its defenders. And I, I carried that incredible sense of pride with me. And I'm, I'm sure that had something to do with me joining the military myself years later. Wow. Wow. Intense. Uh, it's, a, it's an intense experience for a 10-year-old. Little known fact, uh, my, my father was also a, uh, in the military. He was a uh, helicopter pilot. In the, wow. Mar in the Marines, and uh, wasn't wasn't uh, a lifer. Uh, he, he was in for a, a shorter amount of time, um, but uh, definitely definitely makes an impression on on, mm -hmm. on, on a kid. Uh, and does that mean you you, you were moving around a lot uh, as part of that upbringing, or or did you have kind of one home base where you where you kind of called home? No, we moved around every couple of years, uh, mm. literally. I. I'm sure I've added it up at one point, but you know we probably lived in ten places before I, uh, I I got to college. In fact, the longest I ever lived anywhere before settling down here with Anne Marie was when I went uh, when I went away to school, and that was four years in one place. It felt like it felt like home. <laughs> wow. So that's you know that's the downside. I mean, I talked about the the plus side of growing up that way, mm -hmm. but the the hard part is you you don't get to put down roots. You don't get to build that sense of permanent community. And the first chance uh, Anne Marie and I had to do it, uh, I married I married Anne Marie in '98, mm -hmm. uh, girl from Medina, Ohio, and we we kept coming back. I mean, even before we got engaged, I I had this 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 pull towards uh, towards Ohio when when we were dating and just fell in love with it and. 
after nine years in the Navy and, and going back to school, we decided this was where we wanted to raise a family. This is where we wanted to put down roots. Yeah, no, that, that, uh, that makes sense. And as you, as you know, uh, my wife Tava is also uh, from Ohio, and there's yep. some, something about uh, the Ohio women. I'm not sure what it is. Um, <laughs> what, is it, what is it about Ohio women that are so uh, appealing? Uh, in Anne Marie's case, she keeps me honest. She doesn't let, let me get away with anything. Uh, it's that I guess those, you know, those those rock solid Midwest values. Anne Marie certainly doesn't put up with any of my uh, any of my whining, uh, and I like that. I like that. <laughs> well, I I, uh, I concur on that point. Um, and and so we're we're going to get into to more of of uh, of your life. But I would say to summarize, I would say that. You've you've dedicated your life to kind of a life of service and 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 kind of giving to greater missions, um, and uh, I, I'm told that you started this even when you were you were in high school. I heard that you tried to solve world hunger in high school. Can you tell me a little <laughs> I, bit about that story? I know, I know who is telling you these things. <laughs> with Anne Marie, yeah, I had this this crazy notion as a, a high school kid with a a passion for, for science. Uh, and you know, also this idea that we could, we could use science in a, in a disruptive way to, to make things better that if we could, um, if we could find a way to, um, on a mass scale, harvest plankton, (laughs) we could, (laughs) we could, um, we could massively increase the, the amount of protein entering uh, entering diets in parts of the country that desperately needed it. And I mean, that's all very lofty, right? But what it meant for my parents was uh, putting up with a plankton lab in the kitchen for a year uh, <laughs> and, and me um, building these plankton nets out of, uh, out of silk and PVC and, and trying to make a go of it. And, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if, if you can imagine what, uh, pl- dehydrated plankton smells like, uh, but, but it is not great. <laughs> that was, uh, that was my mom's cross to bear for at least a year while I was working on this project and, and trying to, trying to make a go of it. Wow! Wow! A whole year—that's uh, that's <laughs> yeah. definitely more than uh, than most moms would put up with. So, so uh, <laughs> compliments to uh, Mrs. Harbaugh, um, and 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 yes, thank you, Anne Marie, for the for that uh, that tip. Um, and and while we're while we're talking about Anne Marie, uh, can you can you t- you talked about you, you were in college for uh, in the same place for four years? Can you talk about how you guys met and and how you guys uh, got together? Well, I- I will give you my version of the story, which is entirely mm-hmm. different than Anne Marie's. I don't know what that says, but <laughs> I vividly remember meeting her on uh, my very first day of sophomore year. Um, I was a couple of days late to school uh, because, as, as Anne Marie would tell you, I just lost track of time. I was out. I was a, a wilderness ranger out west and uh, got kind of caught up in it, and school started, and I wasn't there. But when I did get there, my roommate introduced me to Anne Marie, and I was just just smitten. Um, her version is very different because she does not remember that moment at all. <laughs> her, her take on it comes a, a week later when uh, we were at the beach on a retreat, and I think I was playing guitar around a campfire, trying to show off or something, and and that's when she remembers meeting me. But yeah, we've we've known each other since 
since sophomore year in in school and took me a couple of years to break her and her and her then boyfriend up and a couple more to get her to agree to to marry me but uh we we finally hitched in 98 20 years ago so uh, it's it's going okay so far the persistence was uh was worthwhile (laughs) broke down her defenses uh over time that that's uh that's great and yeah, I uh, I learned to play guitar in college as well for uh, similar purposes. For the I, same I, reason. Yeah, yes. the same the same reason everybody picks up a guitar. Uh, I I think right. at first. Uh, okay, so 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 you guys met, and then uh, just walk me through how you made your way to to graduating uh, to to the military. So I was not on that career path at all when okay. I got to school. I I had cobbled together enough enough other scholarships to be able to to pay for it and I had a couple of odd jobs in in college including washing dishes which I I hope I never have to do again but I was working my way through I I had gotten an ROTC scholarship but with these other scholarships I I decided to um, keep my options open Mm -hmm. but I had this moment about two-thirds of the way through. I was studying abroad at the time, and I remember realizing that I had really done nothing in my life to deserve the privileges I was enjoying as an American. Mm-hmm. And studying abroad has a way of of driving that point home even more, um, even more forcefully when you realize just how, how lucky we are to, to be Americans. And I just felt like I hadn't done my part. And the very week I got back to the States, I walked into the recruiter's office and I said, I want to be a Navy pilot. Um, so I was a, a walk-on. I wasn't ROTC or academy. I was an OCS or officer candidate school um, pilot and finished my undergraduate degree. And a couple of weeks later, was going through officer training. A year later, I had my pilot wings and was off to my operational squadron, a combat recon squadron. And and had you always, uh, I guess, as you thought about the military, was was becoming a pilot always the goal? Uh, I mean, was no. that something you thought about for a long time? Not. I listen. I'm not. I'm not kidding myself because I come from a family of pilots. My right. granddad flew B-17s in World War II. My dad, of course, was the uh, the recce pilot, uh, reconnaissance pilot, <clears throat> Anthems in Vietnam, and then took us all over over Europe. And my brother was an F-16 pilot. So, you know, I, I knew about flying, but it, it wasn't like this, uh, this thing held out in front of me that I was aspiring to do when I decided to go this route, what I was really looking for was, first of all, a chance to serve, but second, a chance to, to, to lead and to do something that was, that was real world, that was at the tip of the spear, as, as they say in the military. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me to, to fly combat recon, because I, I thought about my brother's experience as a fighter pilot and, and the fact that the vast majority of his flying was, was training for something. Mm. And when I, when I got through my advanced pilot training and graduated as the, the top Navy grad, 
Um, I thought because they give you they kind of give you your pick of, of aircraft when you're in that position. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to fly an airframe that was flying actual missions uh, around the world in peacetime. This was pre 9-11. Mm. And there were only a couple. And, and the EP-3, the uh, Signals Intelligence Combat Recon airplane that I ended up flying, was one of those. And it, it meant that when I hit my operational squadron, the vast majority of the time I spent flying were, were spent flying actual missions mm. off of Korea, over the Middle East, off of China and Russia. And being given an air crew to lead in doing that. And I, I've never uh, once regretted it. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Um, is that, is that an uncommon or, or, uh, less conventional choice for the, the folks that are in that position? I mean, do most people, are most people more attracted to the, the top gun, uh, type? Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Most, most people would, uh, would go fighters and, right. and that's, that's some pretty great flying, and and I at various points found myself envious. But when I looked at what I wanted to do and what I wanted to get out of my time in the Navy, and and how it matched up with the opportunities I was actually given, I feel really blessed to have chosen the path I I chose. Um, especially because of the aircrew element of flying an EP-3. I had 24 folks on that plane whose wow. lives depended on each other, and we were flying, you know, some pretty some pretty tough missions. Missions where we were getting intercepted, where we're flying intercepted by by enemy fighters, where um, we're flying in support of folks on the ground, where we're flying off of North Korea and dealing with some pretty stressful environments and i think that that makes you grow as a person certainly as a leader when you got when you have to lead teams through that whose whose lives depend on you and and what did you get out of of that experience i mean how did it change you as, as a person uh, whether it's as a leader or as a as a the way you think it gives you a perspective Mm -hmm. I, I'm of course running for Congress now, and I'm surrounded by people who, on any given day, think the sky is falling. Um, <laughs> and you know what? I, I, I've, I've been in situations where you're literally putting out fires, mm. and in real life, there are very few things that that scare me anymore. Uh, so, and I get that question on the the campaign trail occasionally I just got it yesterday at a town hall you know what what about this scares you and i kind of chuckle at that because i <laughs> i talk about losing an engine off of north korea and, <laughs> and saying I, i've been scared before but i haven't been scared yet running for office sure sure well yeah that's interesting i i heard similar things uh when i was in business school um you know a lot of the the high stress positions tend to, uh, in banking or, or what have you, or consulting, uh, tend to go to the military folks because they're just uh, unflappable. And I think it is because of that perspective. They, they know what, what fear is and, and everything else is kind of uh, muted relative to that. So yeah. uh, that's, that, that resonates. So, so, so how long were you in the military and then what did you uh, do when you, when you got out? 
So I did nine years on active duty, had an incredible final tour uh, teaching naval history, and went back to school afterwards. And it was a way tougher decision than you might think, because it was the middle of, of a war. 2005 was when I got out. Mm -hmm. The Iraq war was at its peak. And it is really, really tough to, to leave your buddies to carry the bag to get out in the middle of, of a war. But I had just had Katie. I had a two-week-old little girl at home, mm -hmm. and I was at that stage in my career where my next tour would likely have been uh, a what they call a, a disassociated tour. I would have been wouldn't have been leading a crew. I would have been on the ground in Iraq or or doing something without my my air crew with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I looked at I looked at Katie and thought, do I want to miss the first nine months or God forbid, the first year, mm. and I, I decided I couldn't do that. That's going to take a better person than me to make that sacrifice, and thank goodness there are those people out there, but I wasn't one of them. I submitted my, my resignation and went back to school. And, and that's when you went to Yale Law School? That's right. Went to Yale Law School. Anne Marie was uh, attending grad school there as well, uh, getting her master's in urban education. So we we split the parenting duties, and Yale was just so incredibly good to us. They let me, most of my professors at least, let me bring Katie to class with me, which was <laughs> kind of a cool experience. She would set up her mat in the back of the room and um, take notes, which, you know, as a sixer, Actually, she was a year and a half old when we started doing that. You know, it's just just making a mess on a piece of paper. <laughs> we, we got two law degrees for the price of one, I guess you could say. Right, right. Well, well compliments to the school for letting yeah. you do that. And also compliments to Katie for being able to sit for that long <laughs> and draw. Um, right. I'm sure my kids would have uh, torn up the uh, you know the chairs and rugs and whatnot. Um, so, uh, but you know we talked about perspective and what was it like going from that that high stakes military environment to all of a sudden you're you're in an Ivy League school, you're surrounded by different types of people. Um, how, how did that? What, what? How did you respond to that environmental change? I'm I'm glad you asked. Because it was harder than I thought it would be. And I say that fully aware of the fact that I had it pretty good. I had an incredibly supportive family. I had this, this career path, if I wanted it, laid out before me. And I, I put that out there because I, I contrast it with so many of my buddies who who came back and are still coming back without that. And mm -hmm. the challenge of reintegrating vets uh, is, is a very real one, and it is daunting for a lot of folks trying to, trying to make that transition. Um, and compared to that, I had it pretty good. But even then, it, it, was, it was tough for me, mostly because of that loss of community, this mm -hmm. brotherhood and sisterhood that I had been been a part of that had defined me as a person for nine years was in an instant stripped away when I took off the uniform I surrendered that part of of my identity I certainly gave up that that community mm -hmm. and I 
dropped into uh, an environment that had no appreciation of that at all. I was one of two military vets in my entire law school class. Mm-hmm. So we represented 1% wow. of their, I think less than that, there are a couple hundred people in my law school class, there was only one other vet. And it came to a head for me, um, sitting in a coffee shop just across the corner from mm-hmm. the law school. Mm-hmm. When I was, I think, studying constitutional law or something, minding my own business with a cup of coffee, and a National Guard convoy rumbled past the cafe. They were probably from the uh, the armory up in North Haven. And uh, remember, this is this is 2005 or 2006. Mm-hmm. A kid next to me said, I'm sure trying to be funny, but loud enough for everyone to hear, he said, what, is there a war going on? And this being 2006, there wasn't just one war going on, there were two. Mm-hmm. And it, it hit me like a punch in the gut. I stood up, I remember knocking my drink over, I wanted to let this kid have a piece of my mind, and I caught myself just in time, because I realized, you know what, we... We've made these bubbles. This is not the kid's fault. <laughs> right. Not realizing that we're a nation at war, or maybe he does realize it, but still thought it was a funny comment. Um, and it just made me realize how insulated the 1% who we've asked to do our fighting have been from the 99% that they're, that they're fighting on behalf of. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so did you say anything to him or, or did you no, just, no, I didn't, but I, I realized left, yeah. that this was more about me than, than Yale. I, I needed an outlet for this frustration, for this anger. Um, it wasn't long after that, that I got word uh, that a buddy of mine had been blown up in a, in a truck bomb attack, a suicide truck bomb attack in Fallujah. Mm. And after that, I found myself, um, almost in a daze driving down to Bethesda Naval Hospital just to visit with some of the Marines there. Bethesda is where our Marines who are wounded first come back to when they come back to the States Mm -hmm. to begin their long journey to recovery. And I I remember that drive down there thinking really kind of of arrogantly to myself that I was going to drop in and provide these Marines with some, some company and some comfort. And when I got there, exactly the opposite happened because every single one of them said in their own words, they said something to me that reminded me of, um, of, of just, uh, just how, how powerful their, um, their impulse to serve is. They, they all said they wanted to get back to their units and looking at their injuries, I knew a lot of them wouldn't be able to do that because some of them were beat up really bad. But what they were really saying is that they wanted to continue serving again in some way. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be useful again. Right. And one of them, as he was about to be wheeled into his 10th reconstructive surgery, he, he looked at me and said, I, I lost my legs, but that's it. Um, I didn't lose my desire to serve or my pride in being an American, and that stuck with me. Hmm. Wow. Wow. That that is that is powerful, especially when you're you just you just came off of uh, out of the Yale environment, and yeah. 
you know, just coming out of the military into the Yale environment uh, and then getting smacked with reality yet again. And it is ironic getting back to that Yale event that what you said is like, we made this bubble. I mean, it's ironic that uh, the military and, and the, the people who serve afford pe those types of people, probably most of us, the ability to be uh, kind of uh, clueless uh, and the ability to, to be, to not worry or think about war or violence very often. Uh, and that's a, that's a privilege that is being provided for us um, by folks like yourself. Yeah, and it's that's well put. That's well put, and it's I've never heard of it described as a privilege before. But yeah, and and it's one that one that I don't begrudge. I am glad yeah. that my family, that my kids, don't have to think about what's going on in Iraq or Afghanistan or North Africa or Syria or the hundred places that we have troops deployed right now. Yeah, this is a little bit of a stretch, but I, my, my grandmother on my dad's side was uh, from Jamaica and she, she was dirt poor in that she uh, actually lived on dirt floors uh, when wow. she was growing up. Anyway, I remember when I was uh, in high school or whatnot, I was visiting with her and she was telling me about the value of a dollar and how you got to save every penny. And you got and, and she was mad at me because I, I left the lights on in, in, in one of the rooms. She's like, you got to yeah. turn it off because that costs money. And, and I said, well, you know, you should, you should be happy for me that I don't worry about turning lights off because, <laughs> you know, I'm well enough that, you know, uh, we're, we're not poor like you used to be. And she just, she just gave me this look um, that, that I'll never forget. And uh, at the time, I was, I was thinking she was just being unfair or grumpy. But looking back on it, even, you know, a year or two after that, I was, I was thinking, wow, how, how uh, spoiled I must have sounded. And, and uh, mm -hmm. it, it, was, it was just a good reminder of how grateful we should all be for the fact yes. that we, we don't need to worry about these things. So, yeah. uh, the, yeah. uh, so uh, tell me a little bit about what happened next. So, so you, you graduate from law school, you've got uh, 100 different types of options, and, and what did you decide to do? Well, even, even before I graduated from law school, I... I realized that a a life a legal life for me probably wasn't going to do it, and it wasn't that I was um, that the legal life turned me off, but I perceived this compelling need to to address the challenges that my generation of veterans were encountering coming home. I thought about that Marine at Bethesda who said what he said. I thought about all of his buddies who more than anything just wanted a chance to serve again. And while I was still in law school, I helped launch an organization that set out to give these veterans the opportunity to continue serving in their communities and by extension to continue serving their country. And that ended up leading me to Team Rubicon, which is the disaster relief organization that's grown to over 50,000 veterans now that we've retrained to go into disaster zones that I, I stepped down as, as president of, president of uh, Team Rubicon Global uh, late last year to run for Congress. And um, 
So first off, uh, just for anybody who goes to your website, uh, one thing I love about your website is the very first picture is you on the ground in some disaster area and you're wearing a, uh, a Team Rubicon t-shirt. Uh, and it, it's just very unlike uh, most p political or campaign type websites that, that look like a, a J. Crew ad. So, um, <laughs> so kudos to that. Uh, but, but more importantly, um, t tell us a little bit about some of the work you did at, at Team Rubicon and, and, and then also about uh, getting back to uh, the issue of, of family and having to, choosing a, a career that that means that meant at the time you had to spend some time away from family and, and what yeah. was that like? Well, as far as the work goes, my favorite thing about the job as president of, of TR Global, Team Rubicon Global, was that I had every excuse I needed to get out from behind the desk to to leave the Excel sheets and the PowerPoint and the fundraising behind and get out there in the field mm -hmm. and be a part of the organization's mission. I just felt very strongly that unless I stayed connected to that, I wasn't going to be leading the organization effectively. Um, I ended up going back to school to get my EMT, my emergency medical technician certificate. Uh, that was after, as a matter of fact, Operation Seabird in the Philippines, uh, in which TR responded to Typhoon Haiyan, the largest and most powerful storm in recorded human history. And I found myself on the ground there assisting with um, delivering babies and, and amputations and some of the the most challenging uh, medical uh, procedures you could you could ask for in a post-disaster environment and I realized you know what everybody in this environment needs to be a medic and, and that's what prompted me to go back to school but the the chance to to be on the front lines again and right. to have that immediate connection with those that the organization was helping was was really very important to me. Uh, one of my last missions was to a refugee camp for Iraqis and Syrians displaced by ISIS. And that was a powerful experience, not just for me, but for some of the buddies uh, that I served shoulder to shoulder with there, veterans from Iraq or Afghanistan who are going back and serving in a refugee camp for displaced Iraqis, but with medicine this time, not carrying a rifle mm -hmm. and not worrying about getting shot at and doing just a pure good. I remember arriving at that camp with with my ruck on, the advanced team had already set up. Our job there was to staff the clinic. We built and staffed a, the, the clinic at this refugee camp. and. I was being onboarded by one of the nurses who was going through the inventory list in my backpack and she saw portable ultrasound and she literally buckled at the knees and said, um, she said, Ken, you might've just saved a baby because we've got a, um, a pregnant mom here. We have we know it's complicated, but we don't know how the baby's oriented. We have no idea um, what to expect when when the moment arrives, and now we'll know. Um, so it was that kind of experience 
that made me so attached to this amazing organization and in a way that I, I never ever dreamed I would would leave it wow wow and and I mean again I just want to put this in context for people you're graduating from this school you've you've got the ability to to make all sorts of money to have a, a, a very comfy behind the desk job where you, you go home to your family every night but instead you decide to join this organization that has you all around the world putting yourselves in harm's way uh, away from your family, all sorts of sacrifice. But at the, at the same time, you get to save babies, uh, kind of be there in, in very critical situations, uh, devote, devoting yourself again to back to your, your, your brothers in arms, the, the veterans, um, and, and do some incredible work. So, I mean, just super inspiring um, that you're able to do that. And so, you to, again, just to drive it back to, to where we are today, you, you never thought you'd leave, but you decided to leave. Uh, and, and tell us why, why you decided to leave and what you're doing now. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I, I decided to leave after the 2016 election. And it was the entire election cycle. That whole year, I felt like a punch in the gut. And talking to my veteran buddies, a lot of them felt it the same way, like the country we were seeing, the political division, the rancor, this sense that the country was being torn apart from the inside out, just didn't feel like it was living up to the ideals of the country we had fought for. It certainly didn't feel like it was living up to the memory of those we'd left behind. Mm -hmm. And uh, the morning after the election, I... I had a conversation with my daughters um, and and talked to them about this still being the country their dad had fought for and and we're going to keep fighting for it. And I think I must have said those words without really appreciating their import because after I got them on the bus and sent them off to school, that that last thing I said to them, we're going to keep fighting for this country, it really settled in. And I realized that what that meant for me was getting off the sidelines. I could either keep complaining as a bystander or I could step into the breach and do something about it. And for me, that meant running for Congress and being part of the the answer to the the political division and rancor that, that I was feeling throughout 2016. So, so what are the top policies that you're you're looking to fight for what 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 are you in the game to fight for in congress yeah the the main issue in our district is the the opioid epidemic and it actually provides a great answer to 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 my buddies when they would ask and they all get it now but when i decided to resign from team rubicon global to run they would they would come at me with um with tough questions like are, are you sure this is this is the job you've you've always wanted if we had to write the perfect job description for you it would be this i mean you're responding to to disasters you're having an, an immediate impact and sure and in response i talk about the disaster in my own backyard in the ohio seventh i mm -hmm. talk about an opioid epidemic that is raging out of control out of control in a way that the 
the political class that has the levers to do something about it just just isn't. Um, the, I can't tell you how many conversations I have on, I mean, more than one a week with a with a mom, with a a grandparent, with a sibling, who says, uh, "I just took my loved one by the clinic, and the nurse there with." with tears in her eyes said, thank you so much for, for coming in. This is a really important step. Um, but you're going to have to wait three weeks and those three weeks come and go. And that person never makes it back. I had a mom come up to me and say, Ken, you have to win because I just buried my only son. We were on a waiting list for three months for a bed in a detox facility because wow. we were told there was no money, and she's not wrong. There has been no significant um, funding for these rural clinics. And two weeks short of getting his bed, he he overdosed. I mean, this is a public health crisis. It's an epidemic, and that's the first battle we have to win. We have to define it for what it, it actually is. And, and I fear that with our, our current representation, certainly our, our current attorney general, all the talk is of reigniting the war on drugs, which is crazy. It didn't wor work the first time, and this is not primarily a crime spree. This is an epidemic, and as someone who's been in refugee camps on the verge of epidemic outbreaks, I can see it for what it is, and we just need some leadership to to call that out. And it's it's obviously a, a systemic problem. Um, and so what, what are the levers that, that one yeah. could pull from a government perspective besides maybe more what, what you said earlier is more funding to, for detox centers? Sure. What, what else is, can be done? It is, it is systemic and it's nationwide, but Ohio is at the center of mm -hmm. it. And the Ohio 7th is one of the worst in the nation. Mm -hmm. um, the first lever, of course, is medical intervention. Um, we need people who are ready for treatment to be able to get treatment immediately. Mm -hmm. We have to go after uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies uh, who irresponsibly pushed these uh, derivatives knowing their, their addictive nature and, and lying about it. Mm -hmm. um, most of all, we have to accept the reality that, that no one chooses to be a heroin addict. I mean, two thirds of the people hooked on um, opioid derivatives in this district started with a a prescription. Yeah. If if we need if we need to convince people that this is um, this is a disease, I think that's a great uh, that's a great starting point. I I often approach this with the moral argument first, because for me, that's the most compelling when we have a, a moral obligation to treat this like a medical crisis. Mm -hmm. But if that doesn't sway enough folks, and for whatever reason, it's not swaying our, our current representative and our current political class, the economic argument, it could be just as compelling for every hundred people in the district, not in treatment, we have 56 more, um, break and enters. We have 12 more burglaries. Hepatitis C rates are shooting through the roof because of the IV users. We had a thousand more kids in foster care this Christmas compared to the Christmas before. 
a lot of them sleeping on the floor of social services over the holidays because there were not enough families to take them in. The collateral damage from this epidemic, just in economic terms, is almost incalculable. So I just think there is absolutely no excuse, either morally or economically, if you need that, to to tackle this, to address it for what it really is, which is a medical crisis. Yeah, and, and I always think about not only the the negative implications, uh, but but just the opportunity cost, right? All that yeah. lost productivity, oh, all that all that lost creativity, and 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 uh, that that is associated with when people are are doing this with it with their lives. So, uh, it's yeah. such an important issue. So, what what are the other uh, one or two issues that you are are key to your campaign? Healthcare, of course, and that dovetails with the opioid epidemic. But mm-hmm. but healthcare is one of these things that you hear on just about every door that you knock on, in in the Ohio Seventh. And for for my part, those conversations are a validator of what I knew to be true going into this race. That people were worried about how how they were going to take care of their families. But it's also as much personal as it is political. It's more personal than it is political because I got I got three kids and my middle daughter, Lizzie, needed four surgeries before she turned four years old. Mm. And Anne-Marie and I scheduled the first one of those without knowing how we would pay for it. And that was a terrifying place to be uh, as, as a family, as a father. And I got lucky. Um, I, I was able to... Um, to, to get a job this at the time I, I um, was able to get a job with McKinsey and they they took us on and they of course have a gold-plated health care plan but not everyone can do that not everyone right. can can count on walking into McKinsey and getting a job that'll take care of a sick kid and worrying about your your kids health shouldn't be a roll of the dice for anyone much less a family in the richest country on earth. We got to figure this out. No, I'm with you. My, I, my, I think I mentioned to you earlier. My first son was born premature, and uh, we spent about a month in the hospital with him. Yeah. Uh, we were actually living in Vancouver, Canada, uh, during those days, so we had yeah. access to uh, public health care. And uh, I'm no, I'm no expert on the the healthcare policy side, but I can tell you as a uh, as a patient, uh, the care was uh, outstanding, uh, of outstanding quality. And, um, but, but I, I certainly identify with what you're saying. If being, being in, in that situation or a similar situation where you have a health crisis or, uh, and you don't have access to healthcare, it's, it's terrifying. And it's, uh, I mean, we often talk to talk about the, the, the cost to the system and, and, uh, but I think what we don't talk about is the is the stress associated with with that, uh, regardless of something if something is happening yet. But just the fear of uh, of that uncertainty of, of yeah. knowing that down the road something's going to happen because things happen, whether there are accidents or there are health issues that that uh, that happen over the course of people's lives. And I think we don't because it's hard to quantify it. We don't talk as much about the the stress and and fear that that um, can be debilitating for people uh, who have to worry about this day to day. Yeah, and, and it's of course this ever present 
stressor on family life and relationships. And it also has very real implications for, for changing jobs and things like that. I mean, it oftentimes turns into a trap for people. Mm-hmm. When, when we celebrate one of America's greatest virtues being economic mobility, and we have this, this, this ball and chain of, of uh, a healthcare system that is not at all um, addressing the, the most basic needs of, of Americans. Um, yeah, we and can do better. We, and while we're talking about um, kind of economics, can you talk a little bit about jobs? Because jobs is always uh, one of the top, the top issues that your average voter is thinking about, and especially Huge. in Ohio. Uh, I know that's, that's yes. critical. So what are your thoughts on, on, on job creation? I, we have to do something quick, and we have to do something significant. And I think the you talked about levers earlier. I think the the first one has to be a massive, massive infrastructure investment. And we have to think of it creatively and go beyond the usual trope of just bridges and and roads. In the Ohio Seventh, we have the four hundred and eleventh worst high speed connectivity in. The country. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have counties in this district with worse high-speed connectivity than parts of the Nevada deserts. It's it's crazy. 411th worst out of 435, um, and it's it's not as if the technical barriers are are significant. We've just had a lack of leadership, a lack of vision, and an investment there is exactly the kind of thing that that can put skilled Ohio workers back on the job uh, immediately. And these are the kind of jobs you can't outsource. So when we think about infrastructure investment, we think about building that bridge to a modern economy, uh, building a uh, high-speed infrastructure where high-speed internet infrastructure where we know the return on investment is is always going to be there. And then I think about the foundation of any infrastructure investment. Uh, and I think about education. Mm-hmm. We never seem to talk about that enough when we talk about infrastructure. But when business execs come to a place like Coshocton or, uh, or these, these counties around the district, you know, Ashland and, and the, the outskirts of Mansfield, and when they, when they ask about the economic vitality and what what the future holds for these communities. Of course, they're looking at the roads that they're driving in on, but the first thing they really want to drill down on is what are the educational opportunities here like? Is this community going to be able to supply my business with with a workforce? Mm-hmm. That's where we need a real moonshot. We have to we have to come up with an education moonshot, and that's an infrastructure investment. Mm. Um, and there are ways to do it to do it smartly. I was at Lorain County Lorain County Community College a couple of weeks ago, and they have a phenomenally successful um, training program, which starts with the businesses mm-hmm. and with a conversation with business leaders uh, and employers about what they're looking for and. The community college works hand in hand with the um, with the local business community to fill those jobs. 
good paying, technically um, uh, technically advanced jobs. Uh, that you know, th- th- these are not these are not minimum wage jobs. They are they are jobs that build that core of any uh, plan for economic growth. And their placement rate is near a hundred percent. Most of the people have an offer months before they even graduate. Uh, when I talk about in, investing in infrastructure, I'm talking not just about K-12, but K-12 and beyond with an eye towards real training for real jobs. So uh, a couple things I like about this. I mean, this seems, uh, and it, I think it's hard for a lot of people in, in different areas of the country to imagine uh, not having high-speed internet. <laughs> But uh, yeah. I, I, this is reality, and and it, it the the investment has not been made, but it had it would have a number of downstream effects related to some of the things we're talking about, related to education and kids being able to uh, study more effectively and and keep up yeah. with their coursework more effectively. On the job side, it, I mean, as we become more of a digitalized virtual economy, uh, it, it enables people to sign up for remote jobs that uh, yep. they, from all around the world. And the third piece, which I think is less often talked about, is uh, the ability to create your own business um, and to become an entrepreneur. And uh, whether you're selling something on Etsy or starting a website or, or whatnot, um, this, is, this has been a major engine in our society that uh, a significant amount of the population, I would say, and from what you're describing in the Ohio 7th, has been left out of. So uh, yeah. to me, there's no other, there's no other m- more tangible way you could, you, you could, you could do that. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what, there are tons of things I want to ask you about, but um, I know our time is limited. So what, what I, one thing, last thing I want to ask you on the, on the campaign is uh, we, we live in a polarized society. Uh, there are some people who, uh, who are on the right who are always going to vote right. There are some people on the left who are always going to vote left. But there's this 10 to 15%, whatever percentage you, you want to call it, in the middle. Um, and, and so if they're listening right now, what, what would you say to them? What, what, what message would you, bring, would, would you want to share? Well, for, for what it's worth, I think the middle is way bigger than that. And I, I, I think that mostly as a gut feeling, or or at least that's how I came to this campaign with just this abiding faith that the vast majority of Americans really were moderate and, and cared far less about partisanship and party affiliation than they did about moving the ball forward and getting things Mm -hmm. done. But that's been affirmed um, every weekend that I've been out knocking on doors. It's been affirmed in every town hall I've I've ever held, including in parts of the district that are supposed to be really, really partisan. Mm-hmm. I think we we've been sold this notion that America is is pulling itself apart, but that's that's a top down thing. At mm-hmm. the grassroots in in the kinds of neighborhoods that I'm walking in my own community, the things that unite people are far stronger than the things we're told that divide us when I talk about uh, or when I talk with folks about the thing that the things that keep them up at night they talk about the opioid epidemic they they talk about a loved one who's uh, who's hooked um, they talk about 
their health care premiums. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are things that Republicans and Democrats talk about. And I hesitate to even put those labels on because for the vast majority of people I talk to, they consider themselves first and foremost to be Americans. Mm -hmm. And then here at least, Ohioans, and maybe for some of them way down the list, Republicans or Democrats. Mm -hmm. But to to get to the the answer to your question, what I would say to to those people in in the middle, and I think it's a vast and growing middle uh, of people who are fed up with the parties, I would say, look for candidates who you can believe in when they say country over party. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an easy thing to put on a bumper sticker. But what we're seeing this year is an unprecedented number of people running for office who've actually put some skin in the game for mm -hmm. that ideal. Uh, military vets, Peace Corps vets, uh, public health um, service uh, vets, Teach for America uh, uh, vets, the service alumni who, were, who felt, and I've talked to dozens of them, and they all seem to have come at it the same way they felt in 2016, like our political class was not doing right by um, by the voters. Mm -hmm. And on their own initiative, they decided to do something about it. They decided to jump in and we are seeing more service alumni than at any time in modern history running for office. To me, that's an, an incredibly hopeful sign. And, and I think it's an indicator that we are still very much a self-correcting democracy. <laughs> when we when we lean too far over, um, the the voters pull us back, and they demand common sense and moderation, and most of all, people who will will show up and actually deliver on their promise to put country over party. Awesome. That yeah, that's a, that's a really uh, interesting and nuanced observation that the the middle is is much larger than most people think, and and the much larger than the the media kind of wants us to feel. Um, yeah. And and it's yeah. it's cool to hear that that they're actually seeing that on, on the trail. Um, great. So uh, just a few other quick things. Want to run mm -hmm. down? This is kind of our rapid fire. Um, <laughs> just getting back to you. Just who you are. What do you do? You probably don't have a lot of time, but what do you do for fun? What do you do with uh, with your family? Um, in the summertime, we've got a tiny little sailboat. I love to take Katie. Um, love to take Katie out sailing. Uh, in the wintertime, we got a big hill in the backyard, and uh, and Lizzie and Henry and and Katie each have their own sled, and uh, and we got probably four inches of snow out there now. And uh, as soon as we're done, I'm going to head out there with them and, and sled down to the, to the chicken coop <laughs> at the bottom of the hill. Oh man, man, that sounds, that sounds fantastic for, for us. You're uh, not getting much snow in San Francisco. Yeah. For, for us, uh, <laughs> San Franciscoites, um, or San Franciscans, we, uh, are jealous of the snow and, and the backyard. That's, uh, that's incredible. Oh, that's right. You don't even have that. <laughs> um, and, and I also heard that you're into woodworking and, uh, and, and you had an interesting gift for, for Anne Marie, uh, on your anniversary. Yes. It, it, well, I had the promise of a, uh, a table that I was building <laughs> in the barn, um, a year ago and, um, it didn't materialize until the, uh, the second anniversary, but, um, Lizzie and Henry both helped with that as well. Uh, so get them into it. Awesome. Awesome. And, uh, 
Is there a, for either from recent days or, or earlier in your life, is there, is there a book or some, some sort of, some resource that uh, was valuable to you or influential to you that you would want others or, or you would share with others? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I taught a course on, uh, on the history of the American idea of citizenship. And there were, you know, all of these really lofty texts and speeches and things like that. But there was a, a popular fiction book that I just threw in there because it was one of my favorites and it became every one of my students' favorites as well. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to relate this to your question, but I got to make a plug for Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield, which talks about the Spartans' last stand at Thermopylae Ah. and uh, and this this idea that (laughs) there's no such thing as a lost cause when you Hmm. can inspire an entire nation. Um, and it's just beautifully written and, uh, goes to the, the personal as well as the, the political and the, the state level about what was at stake. Um, but just a, Mm. uh, an incredibly moving book that at its heart really is about citizenship and service. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I'll have to pick that one up, uh, for sure. And last question for you. Uh, if you, this is, uh, kind of hypothetical, but if you could put up a billboard, uh, and write anything you wanted on it and, and show it to any audience, let's, let's take the seventh for now. And, and you can't say, uh, vote for Ken Harbaugh. What no. would you, what would you, what would you want it to say? What, what, what message do you want to share with people just in general? Well, I, that's a, that's a great question too. Um, I had a, a professor who I can't even remember what he taught, uh, but the the last thing he left us with uh, was two words. Um, he said, be kind. Above all else, just be kind. And, and I think that would go a long way uh, to solving a lot of what, um, of what ails us. And we can disagree with each other mm-hmm. and be kind. We can fight over things that matter and still be kind. Um, and if, if I had one value to impart that would fit on a billboard and leave an impression, it's something I try to teach my kids every day. It's be kind. Absolutely. As a parent, I can completely agree and, uh, and, and identify with that. So I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Ken really enjoyed, uh, learning more about you and, and your path and, and what your and your campaign and what you're doing today. Uh, it's really inspiring, uh, to follow that. So how can people, uh, speaking of following, how can people follow you, your campaign, uh, your book, uh, give, give us the, uh, the, the, the ask for, uh, yeah. for what you're doing. Happy to. Thanks. Uh, the campaign site is uh, KenHarbaughForCongress.com. Uh, that, that's probably the good starting point because that'll take you to our Team Harbaugh uh, Twitter page and our, our Facebook page. Um, the book Aunt Marie and I wrote, I can't, can't believe it these days. It seems like a, a former life, but it's <laughs> Here Be Dragons. Uh, and I think it's, you know, still somewhere on the Amazon charts. We had a, a great run. Uh, but if you want to want to buy a copy, 
uh, would be uh, would be would be honored to uh, to sell you one. Um, <laughs> what else? I, I think that'll do it. Yeah. Excellent. Um, come check us out on the, the campaign site and give us your feedback. Awesome. And, and I'll include all links to those in the, uh, the podcast notes. Uh, so to, to finish it off, just want to say thank you again, Ken. And thanks everybody for listening. Uh, really appreciate it, Ken. Thanks, Joe. This is great. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Epic Human Podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you happen to be using. And if you want to keep up to date on the latest Epic Human Podcast, please follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Epic Human Pod. And if you have any ideas for guests or feedback on the show, please reach out. I would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.